So welcome back to our Bhagavatam classes. Um, today is January the 3rd, 2021. And so uh, we're going to resume with Srimad Bhagavatam 1923. Om Namo Bhagavate. <clears throat> Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So the prayers of Bhishma in the previous verse, Bhishma expresses his ecstasy, his joy that Krishna himself has come before Bhishma. Of course, in this culture, everyone understands how important the moment of passing is, that one must try to fix one's consciousness in one's desired destination. And of course, Bhishma's destination is Krishna, so he's very grateful that Krishna himself has come before him. And so at one nine twenty three, Bhishma says, Bhaktya Avesha, Mano Jasmin Vacha Janama Kirtiyan Tyajan Kalevarang Yogi Muchate Kama Karma Bhi. Hmm. So this verse says that if a devotee, here called a yogi, which actually yogi really means spiritual practitioner in this context, if a devotee does two things while giving up the body, there will be rewards. So the first thing that a devotee should do uh, when giving up the body, that's the third line, tyajan. Tyajan means giving up, kalevaram, the body, uh, yogi, a devotee. So bhaktiya, with devotion, with bhakti, avesha, fixing, mano, the mind, yasmin, in whom? In other words, in Krishna. Vacha, <clears throat> with voice. You can see the connection, English word voice, Sanskrit vacha. So with the voice, janama uh, kirtayan, kirtayan, glorifying, janama, whose name, in other words, Krishna's name, glorifying Krishna's name and fixing the mind in Krishna with devotion. And in that state where the mind is fixed in Krishna and one is glorifying the names of Krishna, giving up the body, Tyajan Kalivarang Yogi, that devotee Muchate is liberated from Kama karma v from selfish activities. Now this is very interesting because in other religious contexts, such as if you, for example, if you study the history of Christianity, there was a extreme concern. I think it's fully justified to use the word obsession an obsession with being saved. Are you, in fact, it's still there. Are you saved? Have you been saved? So it's not really about loving God. It's about saving yourself. 
But here in the Vaishnav teachings, now we are listening to Bhishma's teachings, uh, there's not this obsession, there's not this focus with I want to save myself. It's more I want to be free from selfishness. Kama karma means selfish action in this case. So to be freed from selfish actions because it's understood that um, if I act selfishly, number one, I will never really be happy because I have broken, I have interrupted the natural flow of life. The natural flow of life is to offer Krishna. We receive our life itself from Krishna We receive everything from Krishna. And then in the act of offering back, we complete the circle of love and devotion. And that's just sanity. That's just sanity. For example, if your parents take care of you and you feel no gratitude, then you you have an emotional problem. So uh, there's something objectively sick about not reciprocating uh, with Krishna all that he's giving us, including our existence, our life, our awareness, uh, our opportunity to elevate ourselves. Everything, everything that we value, everything that is worthy of being valued is, is a gift of Krishna. And ultimately, the greatest gift is Krishna himself. So, therefore, Bhishma here says that he's talking about a spiritual practitioner, a devotee, a yogi. Muchate is freed from selfish actions. Because to be freed from selfish, selfish actions, whatever planet you go to is to be on the spiritual platform. And if you're on the spiritual platform, every place is, in a sense, the same. As stated in that verse that Prabhupada once quoted to me, it's from the Bhagavatam that Narayana Paraksarve, all of all of the devotees of Narayan. Narayana Paraksarve Nakutas Janavibhyati are not afraid of everything of anything. They're not afraid of anything. Swargapa Varganatakeshu, either in material heaven or in hell or in spiritual liberation. That's the whole range, right? Someone goes to material heaven, someone went to hell, someone is spiritually liberated. Swarga, Apavarga, Narakeshapi, Tuliyarta, Darshana. Those who are really devoted to Narayan, to the Lord, they see all this equally because in all these different situations and places, a devotee just sees Krishna. For example, if a young man, say, falls in love with a girl, or the girl falls in love with the man, the boy, they can be together. If they're together, they can be in a nice neighborhood or maybe a poor neighborhood or here or there. They hardly notice. They only notice each other. So to be devoted to Krishna is to become free from the duality of that obsessive duality of always trying to find a good situation for oneself. So that's 
Pijma's statement. Then he says <clears throat> at one nine twenty four. Sadeva Devo Bhagavan Pratikshatam. So Sa, he, Deva Devo, God of Gods, Bhagavan, the Lord, Pratikshatam, let him wait, may kindly wait. It's actually it's interesting. Grammatically, it's very interesting. It's in the imperative form, like he should like let him wait. But of course, it's said in a prayerful way. It's not said in an arrogant way, like, okay, Krishna, this is what you have to do now. And so the um, the Sanskrit word pratikshatam, of course, the, the verb is prati iksh. So I'll tell you what the dictionary says about the, that, that verb. Uh, to behold, perceive, to look forward to, to wait for, to expect to look at, so uh, so the Lord should kindly wait because Bhishma is about to leave this world. He knows that. And in fact, he's going to leave the world in this chapter. And so he's praying that Krishna will wait so that in his final moment in his Bhishma body, before he leaves that body, uh, that pure soul can have the Lord before him. So he says, uh, may the Lord wait. Um, yavant. Kalevaram yavadidang hinomiham. While, yavant means while, uh, I give up this body. Hinomi, I give up. Kalevaram body, idam, this, aham, I, well, I give up this body. So may uh, uh, may the God of gods, the Lord, wait while I give up this body. Literally, it's exactly what it says in Sanskrit. Uh, and then he, he describes the Lord, prasannaha sarunalochan ullasan mukambujo. So that's all a compound. You notice the the hyphens there. And so the the actual word in this uh, compound is uh, and and all the other words kind of uh, describe it. He's as as is ambujo lotus. Anyway, I won't get into all the Sanskrit grammar here. It's a little too much for this situation here. But ambu, ambu means water. If you look at the last word, I'm sorry, the first word in the last line, first word of the last line, ambu jo. Ambu means water. And ja, ja, which is the original word, is born. So water born. Uh, water born means lotus. In English and uh, in the other languages, modern languages that, that are in which we translate Prabhupada's teachings from English, we always say like lotus feet or the lotus face. Interestingly, in Sanskrit, it's reversed. It's the face lotus. So it's actually described, it, it's, it's not a face, it's, it, it's a, it is a lotus, 
the lotus of the face. It's kind of a stronger metaphor. And uh, it means the same thing. There's no difference in the meaning. I just thought it was interesting. So here it's describing Krishna's face lotus. Mukha means face. Mukha Ambuja. Uh, <clears throat> the beginning of the fourth line. So Krishna's lotus face, which is uh, Ulasat, uh, Prabhupada translates beautifully decorated. It also means uh, shining, Ulasat. Uh, just, um, yeah, shining forth, beaming. Ulasat uh, means beaming. Translated here as beautifully decorated. So Krishna's, the lotus of Krishna's face, which is shining, beaming, effulgent. Uh, Aruna lochana. Lochana means eyes. And uh, Aruna is a color. Just like that song by Bhaktivinoda Thakur, uh, Udila Aruna. So Aruna is precisely the... Uh, the color of the sun when it first rises. It's not just red. We sometimes hear Krishna's eyes are reddish. But if you think of the that beautiful color of the sun just as it's first rising above the horizon, that is called Aruna. So in that song, Udila Aruna, when the sun first rose, Aruna. So... Krishna's eyes are described here as Aruna Lochana, that Aruna color eyes, which are shining, and, and his face is shining, gleaming, and uh, with a prasannahasa. Prasannahasa. Hasa means a smile. So the, um, the Krishna, there's a smile on Krishna's face. Prasanna, Prabhupada translates as cheerful. Prasanna is uh, the same word as prasada. You know what prasada is, we eat it. But prasada means grace or mercy. And prasanna means something like graced or something. And so in the dictionary, prasanna means clear, bright, pure, uh, tranquil, gracious, kind, kindly disposed. So as prasada means mercy, so prasanna means something which is disposed to be merciful in this context. And so Krishna's smile is merciful because there are other kinds of smiles. I mean, you can smile because you're mocking someone or you know, laughing at them, or you can smile because you don't take them seriously. Like, let's say someone says something foolish, and in that situation, you don't want to personally say that that's really foolish, so you just smile. So there are different kinds of smiles, but this smile is prasanna. It's a smile, it's a merciful smile. It's a smile showing a disposition an inclination to to bless, to give mercy. So, <clears throat> so in that compound, prasannahasaru nalochanolasan mukambujo, 
that's all one compound, and it's all describing the lotus, Ambujo, of Krishna's face. So it's a beautiful, uh, poetic, and uh, very meaningful devotional description of Krishna's face and uh, his, his eyes and his smile. And then Bhishma describes Krishna as dhyana patas, the path of my meditation. <clears throat> In other words, to meditate is to meditate on something. You meditate on something. And so therefore, your meditation has a path. It goes somewhere. Your consciousness is going somewhere. Even if it's going, even if it's reflexive in the sense that your consciousness is, you turn it on yourself. Consciousness tries to understand itself or, or the conscious soul meditates on the soul, on oneself. But in any case, in this case, obviously the meditation is on God, on Krishna. So, so Bhishma describes Krishna as the path of my meditation. In other words, the object of my meditation. And, and even if you know from the Yoga Sutras that one advances to different stages of meditation, as we know, uh, for example, our main meditation is, you could say, japa, for those who do it. And uh, kirtan is supposed to be a meditation and not only a sort of like a pious uh, sort of primitive rave. I mean, it's actually supposed to be, you know, you know Kirtan's also meditation. So we are always trying to remember Krishna. The whole point of our life is to remember Krishna and to remember something in a steady, uh, profound way is to meditate on it. Tiana. And so Krishna is the path of our meditation. And not only the not only the path of our meditation in the sense of being the object of our meditation, but also in the sense that um, it, it's we make progress through that meditation. So dhyana pata in Sanskrit, dhyana patas can also mean uh, a path, a spiritual path which is meditation. And so in that sense, we meditate on Krishna in the neophyte stage. And as we advance to higher stages of Krishna consciousness, we continue to realize higher states of knowledge of Krishna and devotion to Krishna. And so that sense, Krishna consciousness, literally being conscious of Krishna, is a path that's a progressive path. And finally, Bhishma says he wants to meditate in Krishna as Chatur Bhujan's four-armed form, which of course tells us about Bhishma's own uh, devotion. He's a warrior and he meditates on Krishna in that four-armed form. So that is a, uh, that's a, that, that's a, uh, a profound verse, one nine twenty four. So maybe we'll do one more. 
Okay, that's so now Sutta speaks again. Sutta Uvacha. So Bhishma has said, at least for now, he's going to continue speaking actually. But Sutta here wants to say something. So Sutta Uvacha, I mean, he was quoting Bhishma, but now he wants to make his own statement. Yudhisthiras, Tadakarnya. So Yudhisthir, hearing that, Tadakarnya. Karna means ear, and akarnya means hearing, hearing that. Sayanam sarapanjare. So, uh, aprichat, he asked the person who was sayanam, who was lying, lying down, sarapanjare, on the bed of arrows. So, Bhishma is described here as the person who is lying on the bed of arrows. Uh, the word panjara, yes, it can mean a, a cot, you know, a cot because India is, so it's, um, I don't think they had mattresses, the kind we have today, but, you know, it's a cot place to lie. And so, um, <clears throat> so Yudhisthira, hearing that, now asked Bhishma, who's lying on that bed of arrows. Shara means arrows. Vividhan uh, dharman. He asked him about uh, varieties of dharma. Multifarious dharmas. Dharma here, of course, is in the plural. Which Prabhupada translates, Prabhupada translates that here very literally, multifarious duties. Or various religious duties. As the rishis, the sages, were literally listening along. So you can, in English, you can say to listen along with someone. That's exactly what it says here. Anu means along. So they're listening along with Yudhisthira. So... Let's see, we'll do one more verse, and then if there's any questions, those can be sent. So, Purusha Sobhava Bihitan Yata Varnam Yata Shamam Vairagya Rago Padi Bhyam. Wow. Amnato Bhaya Lakshanan. This is so first I'll read Prabhupada's translation, then I'll explain why this verse is interesting. It's a little complex. At Maharaj Yudhisthira's inquiry, Bhishma Day first defined all the classifications of caste and orders of life in terms of individuals of the of the individual's qualifications. Then he systematically uh, in twofold divisions, describe counteraction by detachment and interaction by attachment. So I think I will do this verse next week because it's interesting that there's a lot to dig into here. There's a lot here. Vairagya rag. I mean, you can tell by Prabhupada's translation that. Uh, it's not just, it's not a simple verse. And so uh, I think I'll save that for next week when I can really go deeply into it. So for now, uh, there are some questions, I believe. Let's see.
One question, what is the more accurate meaning of Shanta defined as the marginal state of devotional service, the relationship with the Supreme Lord in neutrality, passive love, awe and reverence, passive love of God, peaceful equilibrium, etc. So uh, thank you for your question. Well, let's start with the dictionary. Why not? Because even if you have a non-literal meaning, it somehow is derived from the literal meaning. So the word shanta in the Sanskrit dictionary means appeased, pacified, tranquil, calm, free from passions, undisturbed, Gentle, mild, friendly, kind, auspicious. Uh, but also means abated, subsided, seized, like shanta, something is stopped at shanta, it's extinguished, averted. <clears throat> For example, there's a phrase in Sanskrit literature, shantam papam that uh, sin has been stopped or has been, uh, it's almost like, to, to be honest, like, like in English, you can say to put something to rest. To put something to rest means to like get rid of it, to stop it, put it to rest. And so that's very much, shanta can be used like that. So rendered ineffective, rendered harmless, for example, a weapon can be shanta, so, I mean, the sense of becoming pacified can be used describing something which is dangerous or harmful, but when it's shanta, it's pacified, it's rendered ineffective, it's stopped, it can no longer uh, do harm. So it's kind of made peaceful in that sense. So in that sense, shanta come to an end, gone to rest, it can mean deceased. You can say someone is shanta in the sense that they've well, it's again like in English. These are universal ideas. I mean, what's the most common thing written on tombstones in English? Rest in peace. Or also, of course, in other languages, descans in paz in Spanish or ruhe in Frieden. I forget in, in German, Friedenheit or something like that. So uh, in different languages, shanta, uh so, so to rest in peace, there's a sense of life is a struggle. And so finally someone has gone to rest or they, now they can rest in peace. So these are universal ideas, which are in Sanskrit and in many other languages. So let's see how it's used in this particular verse. Um, oh, I'm sorry, not that verse. Sorry, I'm getting a little spaced out here. Uh, uh, Radhe Sham asked about um, Shantarasa. So Shantarasa, rasa, of course, means a flavor. Like in Sanskrit, you could say, you know, masa rasa, which mean, would mean the flavor of the month. But of course, I mean, we, that expression is not really found in Sanskrit literature. But so rasa means a flavor, a taste, and that, and, and in that sense, uh, flavor 
or taste not merely in in the in in the most let's say or in the sensorial sense where you actually taste something like salty or sweet but it also means the uh the taste of an experience i mean we again we say it in english like someone has a taste for he's got a real taste for i don't know classical music so it doesn't mean he literally eats you know, pianos or something, it means that someone has a real attraction to it or to really enjoy something because when you taste something you like, it's, it's sort of, it, it's sort of a, a uh, paradigmatic example of just enjoying something in a simple way that you, you know, you enjoy the taste of something. And so, um, so Shanta Rasa, if you think of Shanta, if you think of all the means of it, which I've just, or most of the means I've just given you uh, to be pacified or peaceful, or in, in the material world, uh, we're struggling. This world is a struggle. I mean, for example, let's say you eat, and then within a short period of time, sometimes remarkably short period of time, you're hungry again. And so hunger is not a pleasant sensation you can say i mean it's hunger is only pleasant when you've got a nice big plate set out in front of you like oh that's great like someone serves you this nice food or it's about to be served and let's say someone is you know not strictly following our culture so is you know enjoying the aromas coming from the kitchen and they say wow that's great i'm really hungry so 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 hunger when it creates the anticipation of a guaranteed gratification, then you could say it's kind of pleasant. But otherwise, really, you eat and then after a little while, you're hungry again. Or let's say we have a good friend or someone that we love. And so we spend a little time with that person. And then that person leaves. And then we again want to have another pleasant social experience. We again want, it's almost like every day we want to see someone whose company we enjoy or talk to someone. And so there's all these um, wants, there's all these deficiencies like I'm hungry, I need food or I'm socially deficient. I need to see someone. I haven't talked to anybody all day or I haven't talked to anybody in three days. And so I need to talk to somebody, a friend, or I need to rest. And so if you think about it, um, in this world, we're always being assailed by um, wants, needs. Uh, the body has so many needs, physical needs, emotional needs, intellectual needs, because th some things confuse us and we want a clear explanation. So there's a sense in which shanta means like you just free from all that. You can finally just rest. I mean, even the, the idea rest in peace, which is kind of, I mean, it's a little silly. The idea that, you know, the, the corpse, or the, you know, the cadaver is just like, you know, it's really having a good nap inside that coffin or something. I mean, it, it, it's, it's pretty silly, but somehow it caught on. So, 
but uh, I remember my father worked very, very hard. You know, certainly all of his adult life, he worked very hard. And when he finally retired, he was just, he was really, really happy just to rest. And I remember like if someone in the family, like for example, I remember one example that comes to mind that one of my brothers had to have his car fixed. And so he had to, someone had to take the car into the shop and then just wait there for a couple hours. Of course, my brother was young and he's very busy and running around. So my, he asked my father who said, yeah, I'd be happy to do it because for my father just to sit there and do nothing was really kind of blissful. I mean, he was completely happy. Just he'd worked so hard that he could just sit and, and just rest and he was happy. So, so Shanta Rasa uh, is an appreciation of Krishna because you can, if you think about it, like let's say if you go to a good movie, you don't really have to do anything. I mean, the actors are having, you know, driving around cars and crashing or jumping off cliffs or, or they are falling in love or being disappointed in love or, you know, all kinds of things are happening in movies. And you, let's say, if you're watching the movie, you can just sit there and enjoy it. You're not in danger. And, you know, I mean, the most difficult thing you have to do is just maybe go out and get another little box of popcorn. And so, so there's a stage where you really just appreciate someone. And, and that is a kind of love or devotion. If you really appreciate another person, that is a kind of devotion. So, but it's a, it's a devotion, which is shanta, which is peaceful, which doesn't involve uh, getting personally engaged in all kinds of things. And if you think about it, for example, between, between Krishna and the gopis, uh, sometimes there's, you know, ecstatic, transcendental fear, like, is Krishna going to come? Or will Krishna dance with me? Or cowherd boys, you know, where is Krishna? Where did he go? And, and someone is attacking Vrindavan. But Shantarasa is more just that it's a love. It is love. It's the love of appreciation, of just peaceful appreciation. So that's why the word Shant is used. Uh, so one last question. Did Bhishma know that Krishna would see him at that final moment? Well, I'm sure he knew that in a spiritual sense, Krishna would see him because he knows that Krishna knows everything. But he knew Krishna would see him because Krishna was standing there in front of him. So, yes. Therefore, he said, Pratikshatam, Krishna is here now. So he's saying to Krishna, please don't go away. Please stay here. So basically, Bhishma sees Krishna is asking him to stay there until Bhishma leaves this world. Ah, Danya, thanks for listening. How do we reconcile that Bhishma acted, chose not to act in ways that were so detrimental to Krishna's pure devotees, the Pandavas, yet he was still so beloved, not only by Krishna, but also by the Pandavas themselves? Yes, this really is the question about Bhishma. And um, this is the question. And I've, I've spent a long time because I'm working on Mahabharata. I hope to get the first volume out, actually, or at least finish my part and send it to production by Gaur Purnima. If Krishna, you know, 
with a little help from Krishna or a lot of help from Krishna. But okay, so I will, I've spoken about this before. I'll, I'll try to do this briefly because I've been meditating actually, I've been meditating exactly on this the last several days because I am now working on, on the part of Mahabharata where Bhishma comes and makes his vow that he will never marry, he won't have children, he won't be a king. And so quickly, here's my take on Bhishma. Um, I believe that whether it reflects his actual course of development as a pure devotee or whether it's just Bhishma playing a part, I think we can definitely trace an evolution in Bhishma's, you could say, moral philosophy or his, yeah, I would say his moral philosophy. For example, when Bhishma, uh, this is sort of a little hint of what's coming in my Mahabharata. When Bhishma makes his terrible vow that he will, uh, that he will not marry, he will not have children, he'll give the kingdom. Um, of course, everyone takes this as, wow, that's amazing, that is so great. And the devas, the demigods cry out Bhishma, but it's not exactly, I mean, to cry out Bhishma is not exactly to say, that's great. That's really wonderful. Because let's look what, first of all, the word Bhishma comes from the root B, B-H long I, which means to fear. The Sanskrit word bhaya, fear, comes from the root B, and, that, and that's the root from which you make the word Bhishma. So the first meanings in the Sanskrit dictionary of Bhishma it's an adjective which means terrible, terrible, or dreadful. And it's also, of course, the son of Santanu and Ganga. But that's what the word literally means. Bhishma also, as a noun, as, a, it can, as an adjective, can mean something as terrible or dreadful. And as a noun, it can mean a horror, horribleness. And so... I want to try to, rather than, I mean, it, it's so easy because all our devotional lives, we've been hearing these stories and it's very fixed in our mind that the demigods were celebrating, wow, way to go, Bhishma, way to go. And that was great. But I think something else is going on here. Um, first of all, Bhishma at this point is still roughly a teenager. Sometimes he's depicted in Indian movies or even, you know, maybe in, in, in ISKCON art is, is like a mature adult, but he's actually a teenager. Uh, he was brought back, you know, maybe, or maybe at the very oldest, like 20, I think he was a teenager myself. I think he was very young. And uh, it's also significant that he didn't tell his father where he was going. If you read, because I've, I've read over the, the Sanskrit, you know, again and again and again, really trying to get every little meaning of, of every little part of every word. And uh, he doesn't tell his father he's going. And so 
for a young man, and even though he's a great soul, uh, let's say within Krishna, again, I'm not speculating, did Bhishma really know everything or was he, was he playing a role in Krishna Leela or did he really undergo development? That uh, is not for me to say, but what I can say is uh, a normal young man at that age has very little idea of what life is going to feel like 10 years from now. And not to speak of 20 years from now or a, or a woman. You know, a young girl can hardly imagine how she's going to see the world as she gets older or a young a young boy. And so I believe that in this pastime, Bhishma um, didn't know exactly what he was doing. I mean, he did. He, he wanted to serve his father. But, um, and again, I accept Bhishma as a pure devotee, as a great soul, but I'm thinking about, you know, the role he's playing in this pastime. And, and, and in crying out Bhishma, the demigods, the devas are also saying horrible or, or that's frightening. What's going to become of this person? And also, there's another way in which it's frightening because there's there's a context. The um, there's there's a cosmic battle going on because the asuras are invading the earth; they're taking birth as as the heirs to great kingdoms, and they're basically taking over the planet. That's why Bumi eventually went to Brahma. And then they all went to Vishnu. And that's why Krishna is coming. He's not here yet, but Krishna is coming. One avatar has already come, Vyasa, because the earth is being invaded and it's part of a plan to take over the universe. That's actually what's going on. So one of the, and so the devas were supposed to defend the earth against the asuras, but Bhishma has just given away his power to um, to initiate a defense against the Asuras. He's just given that away. So, and we know that Vaishnav kingdoms, like the Kurus were at that point under Shantanu, can be taken over by inheritance by asuras. So when Bhishma vows that he will not be a king, he will just serve the Kuru king, that's very dangerous. To give an example, um, before Shantanu, who was the most prominent king of his time, the king of kings, the emperor, according to many statements in the Mahabharata, was not the ruler of Hastinapur. Because if you go back one generation, so two generations before Bhishma and one generation before Shantanu, Shantanu's father, Pratipa, was basically, he was sitting on the bank of the Ganges meditating, practicing yoga. Why does a king be, do that? Because there was, there was no crime. There was nothing to manage. It was like such a yuga. Again, Mahabharata, you have to read the unabridged Mahabharata. Why? Because 
because this is all happening soon after uh, Parashurama, who killed all the Kshatriyas. And then the Kshatriyas were regenerated by the Kshatriyas, the ladies. There's one sannyasi niskan that says women have no varna, although, anyway, <laughs> that's a good idea if you don't actually read Shastra. Uh, the whole first chapter of Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna is worried about Varna Sankara marriages, which mix Varnas, which would technically be, be impossible if women didn't have a Varna. How could you have mixed Varna marriages? But anyway, I won't go into that now. So because Parashuram had killed all the Kshatriya men, 21, uh, Trik Septua, 21 times, three times seven, and the Kshatriyas, the ladies, approached the purest Brahmins who gave them male, uh, who gave them sons, so that the warrior class, the ruling class, could be reconstituted. But the result was you had all these kings whose fathers or grandfathers were these great sages, and so they're very peaceful. And the world was very peaceful. And it's the Mahabharata graduate was like such yuga. So you have kings like Pratipa, the Kuru king, he's just meditating. But the problem is, and, and again, I've what I'm doing is I am sort of reconstructing the history by taking statements from all these different shastras and putting it all together. And sort of it's, it's like a puzzle. And so I think it's becoming clear. So here's the situation, which is very clearly described in the unabridged Mahabharata. That Exactly at the time when these sage, these literally Rajarshis are very peaceful, there's no crime, no one lies, no one cheats, there's basically nothing to manage. And so the kings are just becoming yogis. It's precisely at that time when earth is least suspecting, everyone's guard is down, that the asuras begin to invade. They begin to take birth in the in powerful royal dynasties so that without violating dharma and thereby because by violating dharma they're weakening themselves so it's like they're sort of manipulating that force of dharma that cosmic force so they take birth in royal families and inherit kingdoms and the best example that while pratipa is meditating someone has to pay attention to this asura invasion or sometimes fight when the asuras manifest. And so Indra, so, so that task goes to Vasu, who is the king of Chedi, but he becomes the emperor. So that means the, the, the imperial power shifted about approximately 500 miles to the south uh, to the kingdom of Chedi. And that's King Vasu. But then what happens? And so Vasu is so powerful that, that he can give each of his five sons their own kingdom. So he's giving kingdoms away. This is an emperor. His oldest son is Brihadratha, and he gives him the important kingdom of Magadha, which today is the Indian state of Bihar. But then the most powerful of all Asuras, who's not Kangsa, we tend to be Kangsa conscious because we are absorbed in Krishna's Vrindavan Leela. So in Vrindavan Leela, the big asura is Kangsa. But in the global geopolitical situation, the battle for Earth, 
there's a much more powerful Asura, who's Jarasandha. So Jarasandha, who is in, in his previous life as, as, as an actual card-carrying Asura, was Viprachiti, very powerful Asura general. He takes birth as the son of Brihadrata, as the grandson of Vasu, the emperor. Now, Vasu is the emperor, and therefore his oldest son is going to become the most important king in the world since he's the oldest son of the emperor. However, now there's a big problem. If he inherits that imperial power by dharma, by law, he has to pass it on to Jarasandha, who's an asura. And so you see that there's this powerful Chedi dynasty, which is protecting the world, but the asuras in successfully enter that dynasty, and therefore, imperial power can no longer remain in Shady, because if it remains in Shady, the Asuras are going to inherit it. And so what happens, the next generation after Vasu, the imperial power must return to Hastinapur, uh, to the traditional capital of the Kurus. And Pratipa has a son who doesn't want to just be a yogi. He wants to fight. I mean, he's ready to go at it. And his name is Shantanu. And then, uh, and this is something which is, again, uh, you have to piece all these things together, but it's all there. And that is, in reconstructing the history, what's the most powerful thing that Shantanu can do in a sense, to get an alliance. And that is, he marries the daughter of the previous emperor. And so even though Jarasandha is going to inherit a lot of power, especially in Magadha, from the, from the Chedis, who was spread out into various kingdoms, um, the other Chedi rulers, the other sons of, of Vasu and their sons, uh, are still fighting for the right cause, at least for a little while longer. And so therefore, Shantanu marries the emperor's daughter, whose name is Satyavati. And I spent a lot of time studying Satyavati and who she really is and what she was really doing in a fishing village. And anyway, you'll see it soon, hopefully, in the Mahabharata, because there's, it's, it's really geopolitical stuff. It's not just, you know, having a really bad odor. So anyway... Um, so Bhishma, now let's go back to Bhishma. So that's the historical context. And I think we can't really understand why the devas said Bhishma, which is terrible, frightening, horrible, uh, unless you understand what he just did. Just as Jarasandha invaded by birth without violating Dharma, the Chedi, great Chedi empire, and therefore is going to inherit supreme power, another Asura could do that with the Kurus. In fact, that actually happens. Later, a few generations later, that actually happens in the case of Duryodhana. And so therefore, Bhishma's vow, Bhishma's vow to give up the kingdom and just serve the Kuru king the Asuras take advantage of that vow by 
taking birth in the Kuru dynasty. And of course, the Pandavas are still there because the demigods through their surrogates, and that's what the Pandavas are, they are surrogates standing in for the demigods. And that's why the battle. So they're, they're fighting for the Kuru dynasty. But in fighting for the Kuru dynasty, which has been restored to imperial power by Shantanu, they're really fighting for the world. And they're fighting for more than that because whoever controls the world, because the world becomes a battleground between the suras and the suras, which is also going to obviously have a huge effect in the universe. So if you look at all of that, Bhishma's decision to renounce his ability to defend the earth from Asuras, unless by good luck, there happens to be a good king in Hastinapur, which for some time happens, but of course, it's not really going to work. Bhishma's decision is going to become a nightmare for the world. Shantanu does marry Satyavati. They have two sons who both die very young. And so Bhishma's decision ends up posing a major existential threat to uh, the Kuru dynasty. And of course, then Satyavati has to reveal that she had a son before her marriage to she reveals it to Bhishma. She had a son, Vyasa, and Vyasa comes and uh, Pandu is born. Dhritarashtra, of course, is no help at all. And, uh, and Vidura, because of was born not from royal blood, therefore he can't really rule. So it really falls on Pandu, and then uh, he ends up dying, not as young as, as his... Um, Actually, his legal father, Vichitravarya, and his uncle, Chitrangada. And, and, then, and then, of course, things get so messy at this point. Things are just getting with, because the Pandavas go back to Astinapur, but uh, Dhritarashtra is, um, won't do the right thing. And so at this point, Krishna has to step in. And, 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 and it takes you right into, of course, the 10th canto of the Bhagavatam. So, but if you look at the entire history, uh, Bhishma's decision to give up his right to be a king, because he was the heir uh, apparent, which means that rather than the heir presumptive, an heir presumptive means uh, that someone will inherit the throne only if certain things happen. An heir apparent means, uh, and, and I forget, what was the Sanskrit word? Um, Yovaraja, the Sanskrit word, which literally means like the young king. So the Yovaraja, and, and Bhishma is described as the Yovaraja, which means heir apparent, which means that legally, if Bhishma lives, he will become the next king, and no one can change that. No one can change that. There's no legal way to deny him the kingdom. That's why only, of course, back then he's Devavrata. That's why only Devavrata himself can uh, renounce his right to the throne. No one can take it away from him. That's what, and, and, and of course, when, when um, the Fisher King, who I don't, like a lot when he um 
told Shantanu, you can have my daughter if my daughter's sons will become king. Uh, one of them will. Then Shantanu really didn't have the power to make that happen by Dharma, unless he violated Dharma. And of course, he wouldn't have done that because he'd already promised the throne to his son. So only so that's why Devavrata Bhishma came and renounced it because only he could renounce it. But but his renouncing it was a, a gift to the Asura. So um, getting back to Danya's question, I see Bhishma as evolving, again, either Leela evolution or actual evolution. And um, and you see that clearly when, um, because he had said he, he wouldn't fight with Krishna, but then he does fight with Krishna on the battlefield. So Bhishma was an act-based ethicist or deontological ethicist, which means he felt like Immanuel Kant, and, and Krishna rejects this because it, it really is not good, that ethical value, like to say something is, is morally good, or something is ethical, that an act, an action is ethical, the ethical value lies in the act, of, act itself, regardless of its consequences, which ultimately, of course, is, is extremely dangerous. Because Krishna himself states this in the Mahavarata, that if you do something good, like telling the truth, but it leads to all kinds of horrible things, like you reveal to someone where some people are hiding and then the and the person you reveal it to is evil and goes and kills the innocent people because you gave them the information and this is the example Krishna gives then your so-called virtuous act of of telling the truth is actually an evil act or it's it's bad and and it's punishable so so Bhishma this attitude for example when Satyavati begged him to um to marry the widows of Vichitravirya. And he ge- gives this, you know, this dramatic speech, which if you think about it, is not really such a great thing. He says, you know, basically, even if the, you know, if all the worlds collapse and the whole universe goes to hell, I will not break my vow. So you can't help thinking, well, Bhishma, isn't the world a little more important than your vow? Of course, the argument would be that, well, if I break my vow, then other people break their vows. But again, I think we can attribute to most people a little bit of common sense to understand that. I mean, just like, for example, you could say it's a law that you can't break into someone else's home. But what if there's a fire in someone else's home and there are children trapped and the parents are gone and someone says, you have to break into the home and save the children. I can't do that. It's against the law. You can't break into someone's house. Actually, this very thing, this very takedown of act-based ethics is found in the famous movie, Dr. Strangelove. When, uh, you know, this English attache is begging this general who's launched a nuclear war to uh, call the Pentagon and give them the code to call back the nuclear bombers. The whole world's going to blow up and he doesn't have change for the phone. So there's a Coke machine. So, so uh, the, um, the attache, it was Peter Sellers, is going crazy and saying, look, the world's going to be destroyed. Just shoot open the, this Coke machine and get the coins. And then the general says, I can't do that. That's private property. And so 
it's a spoof on sort of like the deification of capitalism or the deification of any mundane moral principle where you sort of passively cause or allow much greater evil in the service of some principle. And that's what Bhishma did. That was Bhishma. And on the battlefield of Kurukshetra, he had promised he wouldn't fight against Krishna, but he did fight, which means that he broke his vow. So I see that moment as Bhishma finally really understanding that, um, you know, I think a more serious ethical philosophy. But there's another point. The Bhagavatam, again, putting things together, the Bhagavatam also says that uh, basically on both sides of Kurukshetra, there were good and bad people. So I think it's, it's obvious that some people who fought with the Pandavas did so for their own perhaps political or military advantage. Some of them might have done so because if the uh, the Pandavas won, they wanted to retain power as Asuras. And also, um, it's just like, for example, uh, when you have some infection in your body, your body produces all these antibodies. When you have some you know, infection or virus. But once the infection is gone, if your body keeps producing antibodies, you you die. It becomes, it becomes a, I forget the exact name, but it's, uh, that's basically what it is. And so when the, these mighty Asuras from higher planets invaded the earth, Krishna brought all these, you know, fight fire with fire, brought all these celestial powers. But the point is that once the Asuras were defeated, these very people like the Yadus and others would destroy the earth because they were so powerful. And so in that sense, I see Bhishma also as perhaps consciously relieving the earth's burden because there's a verse in the Bhagavatam where Krishna is meditating and he says that I brought the Yadus to relieve the burden of the earth, but now they themselves have become the burden. And that's why Krishna uh, arranges that fratricidal war in Dwarka. So, or actually not in Dwarka, I think it's in, it's, it's in a, it's outside Dwarka. So in that sense, Bhishma could be consciously serving Krishna, engaged in his mission, knowing the Pandavas are going to win, which he did know because Krishna was there, and just helping to remove all these superhuman warriors, including some Asuras in the Pandava side and others, to fully relieve the earth's burden. So in that sense... That's one way I, th- I think I'm, I'm convinced that's actually what happened. So anyway, there's a lot more to say, but thank you, Dunya. And uh, very quickly, how to understand the idea, everything is within Krishna's plan when it comes to our free will, because it's Krishna's plan that we have free will. And Krishna knows our inclinations, and therefore he puts the right people at the right place. For example, if you want to sell a lot of your product, you put a good salesman there. If you want to, uh, I mean, so, so you can, you can actually do things. Let's say, let's say you own several companies and you actually want one of the companies to go bankrupt because, uh, it's, it's costing more than it's worth. So you put all your worst managers there and the country and 
the company, in fact, does go bankrupt. So anyway, I won't go into all that now, but uh, it is Krishna's, it is Krishna's um, will that we have our free will and Krishna brings people together in certain ways so that everyone's free will is respected, but things will basically go in the way that they're supposed to go. So that's Paula. So if you ask that question again, perhaps, the next time we can say more about it. So thank you all very much uh, for listening. Thank you for your questions and uh, went a little late today uh, and hope to see you or I hope you'll be here next week. Hare Krishna.